Welcome everybody to the Safina Society, nothing but facts live stream, which you can view now, or listen to I should say, on Spotify and you could view it on YouTube. So all of our, uh, all of our stuff is on YouTube and all of our uh, audio is now on Spotify. So check it all out and uh, get involved by supporting it at patreon.com backslash Safina Society. And today we cover one of the massive figures in Islamic history. He's a massive figure in many, many ways. Number one, he's a massive figure in Islamic scholarship. There's no doubt about it, no discussion. Massive figure in Islamic scholarship. So much so that he's called the king of scholars at his time, or really, really, the, the better word was the sultan of scholars, sultan al-ulama. He is a massive figure in the field or the topic of commanding right and forbidding wrong. He's a massive figure in the field of jihad. And he's someone who has, we would say, the, 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 the virtue of being imprisoned for the sake of Allah and being exiled for the sake of Allah. This is none other than Al-Izz ibn Abdul Salam, also known as Izz al-Din ibn Abdul Salam. And we could say, maybe you could say without hesitation, He's the Mujaddid after in the century following Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. He, came, he was born in 1282. So he's born essentially, okay, um, sorry, hold on. He died in uh, 1261 and he was born, hold on a second, what am I reading here? No, he was born in 1282. Born in 1282. Salahuddin al-Ayyubi died lived and died in the previous century. So Izz al-Din ibn Abdus-Salam came, essentially came 100 years after, in the century after Salah al-Din. Now you notice that sometimes the Mujaddid is a warrior. Sometimes he's a theologian. Sometimes he's a king. In this case, the Mujaddid is a jurist. And you're going to see why and how the application of very simple rules, it cost him. He sacrificed a lot on rules that no two Muslims would differ about. And that's why oftentimes, really, we try to look for you know, little details or something to attain our piety. That's good. That's scrupulousness. But usually, the great sacrifices come in obvious things, major things. But it's applied in the face of fear. And that's what Izz ibn Abdul Salam did. His teachers... First of all, he began studying in Syria. He's a Syrian. And he lived in Damascus. Okay. Hey, that's uh, Mr. Lopez asking a question there? There? Oh, that's a commercial, I guess. Oh, that's, no, it's not Anya. I thought it was someone else. All right. So, he's from Damascus. And he actually started studying at a later age. So he was not one of those child students of knowledge that you might read about, like memorize the Qur'an while he's like three months old. Right? You read these biographies, right? He memorized the, Qur'an, the entire Qur'an at the age of 12. All right, fair enough, reasonable. You go into other biographies, he memorized the Qur'an at the age of eight. He didn't walk at the age of eight, barely walk. He memorized the Qur'an at the age of five. I, well, I have seen that. Memorized the Qur'an at the age of five. I mean, subhanAllah, 
human beings must have been very different. That's all I could say. Okay? They must have been very different. So, he was not one of these child prodigies. He studied later in life, okay? But he advanced so quickly that he became the greatest of scholars in his, in his lifetime, recognized in the city of Damascus. He's the chief. He studied with the two Ibn Asakirs, amongst others. Now, when does Izz ibn Abdus Salam, his, quote, if we can say the word career, it's a bit weird to say that, right? But his story, it begins to, to, to show that he's emerging as a great scholar when he takes up the highest post in Al-Madras Al-Ghazaliya, the Ghazali school in Damascus. He takes up that post. And he becomes the chief in the Zawiya Ghazaliya in Damascus. And he has that for a long period of time. And he holds the office of Khatib and Imam at the Umayyad Mosque. So he, here you have an example where you have a masjid and you have the learning institution. So to repeat... He, he teaches his classes at the Zawi Ghazaliya. But he's the sheikh, he's the imam, head imam and head khatib in the major mosque of, the, of Damascus, which is the Umayyad Mosque. Now the Umayyad Mosque, when the Muslims conquered it, it was a church, right? But because it was conquered from the Byzantine people by force, it entered into the possession of the Muslims. Okay? And it became, yeah, let's put a picture up, right, so people get to see it. And the Muslims then, they, any pictures of Christ and Mary, they covered it up by hiring Christian, the Christians at the time, the Greeks at the time, were very good at making little mosaics. So they covered those things up with mosaics of paradise, right? And that was really, that is the first, this is the first mosque you study uh, in terms of Islamic art and architecture, because you get to start seeing the first um, movement in Islamic art and architecture is the Umayyad Mosque, in which the, the pictures of, basically images of paradise are there. So trees, rivers, grapes, that's what, it, it's all by mosaics. Now they continued to do this, and throughout for like three, four hundred years, they would slowly get more and more abstract, until Islamic art became completely abstract, right? Until it got to geometric mosaics. And that's really one of the biggest, I don't think any civilization has that. The geometric mosaics that the Muslims made uh, to the point that th this has become like one of the serious arts. And it's like, um, like you could probably study in math too, right? The, the, the way that they would make uh, an entire wall with these mosaics but it's not that they would make one mosaic. It would be a line going from the top of the wall, all, zigzagging all to the bottom of the wall. And that one line would be part of... Yeah, let's get some close-ups of these. Okay. So, uh, it, it started off as like depictions using mosaics and frescoes, what they call. But then eventually it became more and more abstract until it became these mathematical mosaic pieces that you start seeing in, uh, this is a great one right there, you, you start seeing that in the um, Al-Maghrib, Bilad Al-Maghrib these mosaics, and they're still very popular today, and all of Andalusian art Moroccan art, or not Moroccan, it's Andalusian the Moroccans were not the artists the Andalusians were the artists and 
when the Crusaders came over those centuries, the Andalusians came down. Morocco was just like a desert country. And all these artists came down into Morocco and influenced Morocco like that. So, all of the Andalusian art is imitating Syrian art. And that is for the simple reason that the Umayyads are the rulers of Andalus, right? After the Abbasids came, the Umayyads get kicked out and they go to Andalus. And in Andalus, what do they want to do? They want reminders of back home. So when anything that you see of early Andalusian art is actually inspired from the Syrians. Okay, so you see this here. This is the Umayyad Mosque. It's one of the, the, the ornamentation on it is amazing. Now, the Eastern Muslims and the Western Muslims had two different opinions. The Madakiya of the Western countries, they took on a total different position on the artistry of mosques. They said, we can't focus if there's too much art in the mosque. And the masjid is the glory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the outside of the masjid should be highly ornamented. But the inside of the masjid has to be very simple. It should imitate the Prophet's mosque. It should be super simple. So all you see, like usually these lime walls, just white walls and straw mats on the inside of the masjid. And some arches and some nice lamps. That's it, maximum. The outside was ornamented. Now, in the east, they, they didn't do that. In the east, they ornamented the inside of the mosque more than the outside of the mosque. That's why, get a picture of, let's say, Mamluk Mosque of Egypt. It's just like brown on the outside, right? <laughs> but on the inside, it's gorgeous. The Ottomans did the same thing for weather purposes. Like, you couldn't ornament the outside of a mosque in, the, in that weather. So it's like stone on the outside, right? And metal domes and stuff. But on the inside, it's really nice. So there's some stuff on Islamic art and architecture. But in any event, uh, he is the imam of the Umayyad Mosque. And that is one of the most special masajid in our history. In Islamic history is the um, Al-Masjid Al-Amawi, the Umayyad Mosque. And it is a place of gathering uh, for all the great scholars of Syria. And he was the chief imam and the chief khatib of the Umayyad Mosque. But he used to teach in Al-Zawiya, Al-Ghazaliya. And that's how he, he began the beginning of his life, as an extremely competent scholar. And as a moving khatib, okay? And we in Islam don't separate, Islamic scholarship does not separate knowledge from action with the people. Like every, you know what they say today, like public scholar, or, right? Like a, any scholar that, in any field, physics, history, who has a public life. In Islam, every scholar is a public scholar. There's no such thing as a scholar who does not talk to the people. First thing you can't, don't you have to pray in the masjid? Right? You have to pray in the masjid. If you're a scholar, somehow you will be known as a scholar. Either you write books, or what, what else are you doing? You either give talks or you write books or you teach classes. So people know you're a scholar. You have to go to the masjid so people are going to ask you questions. You have to command the right and forbid the wrong. You have to raise your kids. So there's no such thing as like a scholar who lives in one of these like academic little, little town, gives classes, nobody knows about him, rides his bike back or, or takes his uh, Subaru as all these academics drive, right? Uh, and wears his sweater, okay? And cozies up to his MacBook and writes a meaningless book on history or something like that. That's what all these academics do. That's not even allowed. Not even allowed. It's not possible. You have to be with the people. 
Allah's, the rituals of the deen will require you. And you will be obligated when someone asks you a question. And you will be obligated to speak at the level that that person can understand. So we do not have this separation between some, a man of knowledge and the rest of the world and the rest of the people. We have no such obligation. Can you charge this bad boy real quick for me, please? So Aiz ibn Abdus Salam, he began as a competent scholar. His first movement, he did have a movement. And what was that movement? He was against certain bid'ah that began in Damascus. And that spread far and wide, which was a group, nafila on the Nisf of Sha'ban, called Salat al-Raga'ib. It was done as a group, and it was a nafila, okay, that was done in the middle of Sha'ban, and he was against it. And while he's at it, right, he was against a number of other innovations, okay, that were done and performed in Syria. Why do I say, why is this important? Because he is the scholar who outlines for the rest of Ahl-Sunnah the actual, he goes into bid'ah and he defines for us what it is. And he is the one who sets pen to paper that bid'ah follows the five legal categories. That a bid'ah is an adjective, not a ruling. Okay? It's an adjective. So, it, we have to add to it the ruling. Therefore, al-bid'ah can take on the category of bid'ah mubaha, bid'ah manduba, bid'ah wajiba, bid'ah makruha, and bid'ah muharrama. What, what's an example of bid'ah wajiba? In our day, this is obviously me talking, not him, probably, it, it is, based upon our action, multiple jummahs in the same mosque. Multiple jummahs in the same city. All of that was a bid'ah, but it's a bid'ah that is reprehensible. The salah is invalid if it's not necessary. Once it becomes necessary, people can't fulfill their obligation of performing jum'ah if you don't have multiple jum'ahs in one mosque because people can't park their cars, right? Things like that. What else becomes like a bid'ah that is mendub? Is it not using the microphone, for example? Technically, we could have people yelling. After 10 rows, you yell. After 10 rows, you yell. So they don't hear the recitation. After like 10 rows, they don't hear the recitation. But they will hear the takbir. So, but it's mendub for the people to hear the recitation. So to use the mic in that regard. So these are different bid'ah that happened. And he was against any alteration of nawafid, any additional nafidah that didn't come to him in the Prophet So he was against this. So he's the one who outlined that the idea that bid'ah itself is an adjective, not a ruling. Okay. Usually, when people say bid'ah, they have to specify bid'ah muharrama. Am I getting sins for this or bid'ah makruha? Okay. So that's the question. So um, that is the first movement that he did. Secondly, al Malik al Kamil, the king of Syria at that time. Al-Malik al-Kamil began to take a liking to him. And he began to use him as an ambassador to the Abbasid, uh, not ambassador, envoy to the Abbasid Khalifa. Remember we said from the time of Salah al-Din, the Abbasid Khalifa became just like a symbol. 
you could do what you want, rule what you want, conquer what you want, as long as you use Abbasid currency, give the khutbah in the name of the Abbasid sultan, and pay symbolic even respect to the Abbasid Khalifa in Baghdad. And the Abbasid Khalifa in action, practically speaking, was just the governor of Baghdad. His actual influence, and he had a big army, but that was it. Okay, So he became somebody who did accept visitations to the king. But he had his conditions. He would never accept money and he would never go without being requested. So he was somebody who had a balanced approach to interacting with the politicians of his times and the rulers of his time. Right? So now he's really at the height of his life and his work as a scholar. He's the head of the Umayyad Mosque. He's the chief khatib. He's the chief mufti. And he is now respected by the Abbasid Khalifa. He represents the king to the Abbasid Khalifa. The interests of the people of Syria. You guys hear that? My gosh, he's probably reaching the mic. So, uh, he's at the height of everything. Alright, what happens? The Sultan, Al-Malik Al-Ashraf, next king, comes. This enters Al-Izz ibn Abdussalam into his next foray and pushback with the society and the community. What happened? So this king, Al-Malik Al-Ashraf, he was the governor of uh, Aleppo. Right? Not Damascus, of Aleppo. And he was a big proponent of what some call now the Athari Aqidah, that, that name did not exist at the time. They used to call, well maybe of course Al-Athar did exist, but the Hanbali Aqidah. And there, he was a proponent of that, and he was pushing that. The literal, I mean, according to this, okay, according to how um, Abu Hassan al-Nadwi says, calls it, the literal interpretation of the scripture. That's what he puts it. Okay? And Al-Izz ibn Abdussalam was to the bone, to the bone marrow and Ash'ari, who refused to accept anything other than absolute tanzih of the attributes of the verses and hadith that seem to be uh, offering or, or describing Allah Ta'ala with a physical sense, physical body or location or movement. Okay. So Izz ibn Salam went off in the khutbas in public on tanzih. And it was a rivalry, basically. There was no necess- There was a conclusion. You'll see the conclusion later on. The conclusion is that this, this went on for some while. With Iz pushing the Ash'ari Aqidah and Al-Malik Al-Ashraf pushing the Hanbali Aqidah. Okay? Hanabila and Sham were strong. Okay? They were strong. And if they ruled, okay, they pushed it. But he stopped. Now, this king... Al-Malik al-Ashraf ends up all right, uh, on his deathbed. He gets very sick. And as Muslims do, when they get sick, they realize they're going back to Allah. They want to make an amends with people. And one of the people that he calls is Al-Iz ibn Abdul Salam. And he calls him and he says, I need three things from you as I lay here on my deathbed. He says, firstly, I want your forgiveness. 
for all the back and forth that we had. Secondly, I need your dua for myself and my family and the ummah. And thirdly, you have to give me your absolute sincere advice. Absolute sincere advice, and I will act upon it. That's a promise. You, you give me absolute sincere I'm promising you I'm going to act upon it. So Iz comes in, he says, as for the first thing, I never sleep with a grudge against anybody. So I have forgiven you before you even ask this question. Second thing is he made a long, of course, I make du'a for the ummah all the time, and I will continue making du'a for the ummah uh, and for your city after, your, uh, after you. Now, as for the third thing, I have a very, he says, I have a very serious piece of advice for you. You are engaged in civil wars and rivalries with your brothers. Mind you, these are all the Ayyubids. These are all descendants of Salah al-Din at Ayyubi. You're engaged in rivalries with your brothers. Yet the Tartars are on our footsteps, or on our doorstep, I mean. The Tartars are right there. Yet you are busy, okay, having rivalries with your brother. So I advise you to leave off all of these rivalries now and turn to the true enemy of Islam, which is these Tartar people. Okay? Uh, is Ammar's mic on? Um, we don't know if it works, but let me know. If it, it's on? All right, Ahmad, what, is it, what was the 30-second summary of who the Tartars are? Uh, Tartars uh, refers to an ethnic group uh, that share you know, Central Asian and Mongolian features, and they lived under Russian rule, so I think Eastern European, okay. but have uh, Mongolian blood. Okay. And oftentimes in like literature, the Tartars, when people say the Tartars, they're referring to the Mongols. Okay. So Tartars and Mongols are... They're they're close geographically, close geographically and ethnically, and ethnically sometimes they're used synonymously between the Mongols, and sometimes they're used synonymously, and they're they're they share the same history in that they came raiding in uh, the Muslim countries and Muslim cities. So that's where why it's Tartars, Mongols, all the same from the aspect of they're attacking us, and they're from the eastern side, Crusaders are attacking us from the western side. That's basically the idea. Crusaders are French, or the French and the Spanish. The Germans and the British were not known as Crusaders, right? So uh, that's why you find the British have much more tolerance of Muslims than the French and the Spanish. Are the, 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 the enemies of Muslims really in Europe are the French and the Spanish. Not really so much the British. Yes, the British had the modern times, and of course we saw that that, that young lady Brit blamed her being overweight on uh, white people. <laughs> that I talked about yesterday. Did you see that? Oh my gosh. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then she blamed it on the British uh, East India Tea Company coming in uh, through a, a chain of about 12 different events that oh. led to her being overweight. <laughs> okay, so let's leave that aside right now, uh, that absurdity. But the British, until recently, and even when they attacked, they did not colonize Muslims in the name of the cross. Yeah. They, na- they attacked them in the name of wealth, right? So, so, so even though yes, there's anima- there's oppression and animosity and, and all that stuff, right? Um, there isn't. It wasn't in the name of the cross. The French and the Spanish fought the Muslims in the name of the cross, right? 
So that's where uh, the, the history differs between them. And the Germans, there's not much uh, interaction at all from the Germans in the Islamic countries, right? And now, of course, they, they do have issues with the Turkish immigrants there because of the uh, racial and ethnic purposes more so than religious purposes. Germans are the most godless of all people, right? Even, even back then, like, they were known as, like, the Gothic tribes were the ones that used to challenge the church. Yeah. And it was the church in Europe, it was the church versus these Gothic tribes. Yeah. And, uh, the Visigoths and whatnot. And that's where Charlemagne, he comes in, and he basically goes around, and the only way to deal with these pagans is he used to tell them, submit to the Christian God or be prepared to meet him today. He had enough of these pagans. They could not stop these pagans. And by the way, this paganism is making a comeback in Europe. European paganism is making a comeback in the form of like like white suprem- white supremacist movements. But they also call upon and they have symbols, ancient tribal symbols, yeah. and they're going, they're leapfrogging past in history, their Christian uh, history. Now, even if you look at like the TV shows nowadays, you'll see like a big popularity in like these Viking sort of shows. Oh, like these that. Viking shows and, and all that. And yeah. Such like pagan imagery. Such so, total paganism, and they they try to make it across like, oh, these are cool dudes with nice beards, and <laughs> these guys stunk. They smelled. They were not unclean, right? They it wasn't what they are imagining it to be because we have record of Abbasid. Who was it? I can't remember. There is a movie made about him, an Abbasid. The Abbasids send off a, an ambassador to the Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And he writes, uh, writes back like a scathing report. You know the French, uh, funny French thing where the French guy goes and he writes like observations of American democracy, right? And he writes a whole summary of what America is all about for the French king, right? And then that's what... Um, that No, that, that comedian uh, Sacha Baron Cohen, his... Yeah. His comedy was uh, Borat was based upon that. Oh. Yeah, so there, it's a book that people even still read in history. Read in history. <laughs> yes, Ahmed ibn Fadlan is the Abbasid. He goes there and he writes this uh, report. <laughs> he called the, the epistle. There he said, "What it's actually what he mentions in it is the extreme filth of personal hygiene that they're upon." Right, extreme, terribly person, per, personal hygiene is terrible. In any event, all of this we're talking about. I don't even know how we got to that, but we're talking about the uh, Crusaders coming from the west, the Tartars coming from the east, Tartars slash, slash Mongols coming from the east. Now, Salah Aiz uh, ibn Abdusalam, his life really takes a turn. His life takes a turn when he has to actually forbid a wrong greater than any of the wrongs that he's forbid before. He forbade amongst the pious circles the Salat al-Raghaib, which was a nafila done in a group in the Nisf of Shaban. He was against it. He forbade the wrong when it came to um, the attributes of Allah. All it's internal, Right? And that was the first time he faced off against the king, but it wasn't a direct insult to the king. Now, Al-Malik Al-Ashraf dies in Damascus, and Saleh Ismail is the new king of Damascus. All right. In Egypt, 
Nejmuddin, King Nejmuddin, wants to conquer Damascus. So descendants of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi are conquering each other now. And the king, Salahuddin Ismail of Damascus, the ruler of Damascus, what does he do? He, he realizes he does not have the strength to withstand the Egyptian army. So what does he do? He goes and he finds the remnant rabble of the crusaders. And he calls on the Christian French remnants of the French king uh, crusaders of the city of Sidon and Shaqif in a castle that they retained from crusader times called the Beaufort Castle and a few other forts. And he gives it back to the crusaders. These castles still existed. The Muslims had taken them over. He gives them back to the crusaders. And he says, get ready. We're going to fight together against the Egyptians. So he's a complete... This is Jahid al-Kuffar wal-Munafiqeen. So the Munafiq, we don't know what the Munafiq is in your heart. But we do know that you're a traitor. Right? And you will use a Christian to fight a Muslim. So Izz ibn Salam has no fear in preaching against Salih Ismail. And he begins openly preaching against this. Salih Ismail now calls all arms dealers to come because we need to buy weapons. And Izz ibn Salam goes mosque to mosque, anywhere he can go, uh, showing or stating that this entire war with the Christians against Muslims is forbidden and that all of your arms sales, your wealth is haram. Because your arms are going to go to fight other Muslims. Right? Your, your arms are going to go to Christians that are going to go to other Muslims. Salih Ismail, he gains an alliance with other Syrians. Hims had a king there who supported him. And a number of Christians came together. Christian monarchs that are on the edges that were remained, that had some soldiers. Of course, not enough to fight the Muslims directly. He gathered them all. And Izz ibn Salam went against all of this to the point that Salih Ismail, this king who was doing this, had to arrest him. He had to silence him. So he arrests Izz ibn Salam and he puts him in jail. But in the jail, he gains supporters. So he has to move him out of the jail of Damascus and put him into the jail of Jerusalem. Right? In the jail of Jerusalem. And then the king, Salah Ismail, he starts feeling a bit guilty about this. Okay. And he sends, send him my handkerchief, because in the old world, the handkerchief is a sign of a connection between us. That's why you see, like in the old days, what did a woman do if she wanted a signal to a man that she was interested? Drop the handkerchief. Drop the handkerchief. Okay. So the handkerchief was something. Also, the other the cup of water was something else. If a king gives you a cup of water when you come in, or anything to drink, that's a signal of safety. Yeah. Okay, you're safe. You're not going to be punished. At least you're not going to be executed. So he sends a handkerchief and he says, "Go to him and tell him I will return him to his previous position. All he has to do to wipe all this away is 
show up to the court in front of everyone, and kiss the king's hands. That's it. Isaac Nabdesalam laughs. He just laughs. He says, what a fool. You are. Okay. You think that I'm going to go kiss his hand when I wouldn't even accept for him to kiss my hand. Right? Right? <laughs> yeah, out of humility as a Muslim, I would allow him to kiss my hand. You all are living in a whole nother world. Right? You're living in a whole nother world. All you see is the material element of things. I'm living in another world from you. Okay? Alhamdulillah that Allah has not afflicted me with what he's afflicted you. All you see is the material. That you think the position is what I'm after. I'm not after the position. He's after a maqam with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not a maqam with this king. He goes back, and, and Salih uh, Ismaili gets upset, and he says, all right, let him stay. Let him stay in jail. Now what happens? Unbelievable. Okay. They go out to fight, and they get routed by the Egyptians. The Egyptians rout them badly. And the Christian forces are routed. And Salah, Salah Ismail was defeated. Okay. And the Christian forces were totally decimated by the Egyptians. And the Egyptians took over that area of land, Damascus. And they had heard, of course, that Aiz ibn Abdussalam, uh, the great uh, scholar Aiz, where is he? He's from Damascus. Oh, he's in jail. Why is he in jail? Because he was against this whole war. And they said, oh, we like him. In that case. So pull him out of jail and give him residence in Egypt and make him professor of the Shafi'iyya of Egypt, make him the chief justice and make him the, the imam of the greatest mosque in Egypt, which is at the time Masjid Amr ibn al-As, okay, and let him teach at Al-Madrasa al-Salahiyya, al-Salahiyya, which was Salah al-Din Ayyubi's school that he founded, okay, in Cairo which is known as Old Cairo. So he's now the same thing. Chief Imam of the, the Jama Mosque in Damascus, in the Amawi Mosque. Masjid al-Jama, meaning the main mosque. Now he's the Chief Imam al-Khatib in the um, Amr ibn As Mosque in Egypt, which is in Old Cairo. And he's the sh- Professor of Shafi'i Fiqh in uh, the Madrasa Salihiyya. Which, which was founded in the time of the Ayyubids. So, he starts living a life of peace. Everything is fine until somebody does something foolish. And he's not going to stop. He doesn't, he's not going to stop if it's cut and dry. So, this time what happens? There was a, a party. He looks and he sees... A party, basically. People drumming, singing, whatever. It, it may not be alcohol and women, but it's a party. So he looks and he says, wait a second, what's happening here? They said, oh, he's, uh, uh, a man has constructed a, um, he's constructed a party house, essentially. And they unwind there. He says, but underneath it is a masjid. He constructed a party house above the masjid. He said, yes, it's the only flat roof that we had, right? He said, he was appointed as the chief judge, by the way. So he goes and he issues a verdict that this house, 
this party house has to be torn down immediately. No waiting. And they go and they tear it down. Then they said, hold a second. Do you know who that was? Who did that? No, who did it? A man by the name of Fakhreddin Uthman. Who was that? A, ma- a very rich noble who had a big standing with the king. And he goes in and he raises a fit. Has a fit in front of the king. Now the king, Najmuddin, he's in a bind here. I have this noble scholar that we've invited. Now my big supporters here, the rich and the elite, they're all against him. So what he does is he writes a letter to Iz, and he says, you are in good standing with me. I love you. I follow you. You are my sheikh, but having you as my chief justice right now is not good for politics. So you have to step down. But you are in favor with me, right? In other words, we want you to stay here. We want you to do everything, okay? And in fact, in order to show you that, I will make you my ambassador to Baghdad. So he loses that position, okay? And he becomes the... He goes to Baghdad with as basically the ambassador uh, of the king. Right? So he, he continues. His life continues. And you notice, he is a commander and forbidder of wrong. That's what he's doing his entire life, forbidding wrong. Okay? All, while being the most competent uh, Shafi'i scholar at the time. Right? And on top of that... It's, Whoa, Aiz ibn Abdul Salam. This is the funny part. He actually declared in official court records that Fakhreddin Uthman is a fasiq and all of his testimonies don't count. <laughs> this is hilarious because then Fakhreddin later in life found himself in a court case. And the uh, opponents in the court resurfaced Aiz ibn Abdul Salam's uh, testimony. Right or, or or fatwa that Fakhreddin Uthman's testimony in court does not count. He's a fasiq, and as a result, he lost the court case and lost a lot of money. All right. All right. And what else? Now, he has good relations with Najmuddin. Right? Najmuddin bought him in from from Syria, gave him a good position. Then he had to take him down from being chief justice. Okay, but nonetheless, used him as. A uh, as an as an, uh, an envoy, yeah. So they have good relations. Time passes, years pass. Egypt becomes extremely successful as a country, right? And Aiz ibn Abdul Salam is invited to a party. He goes to this party, and he doesn't like what he sees. The king is getting comfortable. He's getting extremely rich. And he doesn't like the attitude he sees in the king's eyes. So a lot of you, um, some of you listening out there may be dads. And you could tell when one of your kids, their attitude's changing a little bit. Some uh, parents are very sharp. You might know this analogy. If you're a single guy and you played sports, there's there's a moment where the game can change. There's like a moment. If you don't jump on that moment, you lose the, you've, you've lost control of the game. 
Likewise with kids, you look in their eye, their little gestures, <clears throat> and you see an attitude change. If you don't fix that right away, you're going to lose them. Their heart is shifting, and there are little signs of that in their behavior, especially in their looks, in their eyes. How they look at you, or how they look at, and how they not look at you. All those other things, these little things. This is what Sultan al-Ulama Ibn Abd al-Salam sees. He looks, he doesn't like what he sees at all. The king is going a bit wayward. His suhba is no good. The companions that he has are not good. So in the middle of this party that he was invited to, in a large reception hall, and the king's at a throne, sitting on a throne, Al-Iz gets up. And in front of everybody, he raises his voice loudly, and he calls the king by his first name. Ya Ayyub. Not, Ya Ayyuhal Malik, etc. No, no, no. Ya Ayyub. Is this what Allah made you king for? To have a party like this, while outside of these walls, people are now openly drinking and selling wine in your kingdom under your banner because they know you won't do anything about it. And they know that your courtiers will not do anything about it and your police have been told to stay silent. The king, everyone waits one silent. The king says, is it true what you're saying? He says, it's a fact. No one is worried that you will ever forbid the sale of wine or the drinking of wine in the streets, including your, your police. Okay. And the sultan, he had to answer. He said, by Allah, I have to say it's not my fault. This was been happening from the time of my father, and I inherited these generals, these police officers, and these courtiers. Like, I inherited them. My dad is the one who set this precedent. I inherited them, okay? And it was really not my fault, okay? Aiz says, then why don't you go and be like the Quraysh, who said, our, we found our fathers worshipping false gods too. The sultan immediately, on the spot, you know why we had good times in the Islamic world? Because you had good sultans. In front of everybody, the sultan brought his secretary, right? An edict from the king to ban and create a special force of police that will monitor the streets and the marketplace, banning the sale and consumption of wine right? and any intoxicant, and that they will come. Any wine that is found is poured straight in the street and the bottle is broken. Because you know wine is always sold in a special bottle. Iblis knows that you have to sell poison in a special bottle. You can't sell poison in a regular junk bottle like this uh, because we don't need a bottle to know the value of water. Water sells itself. Milk sells itself. But poison right, does not sell itself. You need to sell poison. And so that's why um, every single sitcom, movie, every single movie, I think rated PG-13 and up. Maybe it's rated R and up. They take... They get a nice sum of money to have a scene of the guy at the liquor table pouring himself a drink. Every single movie. You cannot have one movie in Hollywood. I, there must be a union of beer comp- of wine companies, alcohol companies. They must have a union of some sort. They put money into a pot altogether to make sure that it goes to Hollywood 
and that's how they cover their expenses and pay their actors. Because they take money from... You know, these movies are basically just completely... There are ads for industries. Not necessarily for a company, maybe, but for industries. So a certain amount of money is going to show you have to have one scene of a guy standing at pouring himself a scotch or something. You, and then you got... Now it's more. There's more, right? So you have to have maybe, let's say, uh, two transgender people, two gay couples, right? Uh, whatever. Everything is just you get they get paid for that. So you just so you know the back end how this works. It's not like the producer's like, yes, I really believe this, I want it. That's how he's getting himself paid. You're not making a movie without that, right? Without those. And it has to be then sometimes they put like it has to be like ten seconds. Or you have to put them in this in this light. So they have to be like crisp and clean, right? They gotta be the cleanest guys on the block is the same sex couple, right? Of course, because they have no kids, right? Of course they're gonna be the cleanest people. You go to anyone with three kids. Touch the surfaces. It's all sticky. It's gooey. Oh, really? The cleaning lady came 30 minutes ago. Yeah, they ruined it already. The shelf life of the cleaning lady came. It's like a 30-minute shelf life. As soon as the kids come back from school, it's deleted. All that work is deleted. Why would we even pay this person? So, he, he does this, and the sultan immediately gives the order. So he's a righteous sultan. Next. He's not done. He is not done. They asked him, by the way, afterwards, his students asked him, how did you do that? Like, how did you stand up in front of all those people and speak to the king like that? He said, they said, weren't you nervous? He said, not the slightest. He says, first, I brought into my heart the awe of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all of these courtiers appeared to me like little kittens. Subhanallah. Man was Arif Billah. Can you look up for me if he had a direct link to Al Mursi Abu Abbas, the disciple of Abu Hassan al Shadi? Because I am pretty sure, I'm not pretty sure, I know he was connected to Al Mursi Abu Abbas because at that time, the Shadiliyah in Egypt had three major figures all in one generation Al Busiri, Aiz ibn Abdul Salam, and Ibn Ata'illah al Iskandari. They were the disciples of Al Mursi Abu Abbas. One was a jurist, one was a poet, and one was the, the next leader of the tariq. Next. When he went to Egypt, the Mongols and the Tartars are not the problem. Who's the problem? The Crusaders. Okay. The Crusaders came and they waged a battle on the city of Al-Mansura in Egypt. And Izz ibn Abdul Salam joined the army. He fought. He fought okay. with the army. The reinforcements of the crusaders could not reach them after the ships were taken by a gale which drowns quite a few of them. Well, who else came from the east? There was an imminent danger of the Mongols. Okay. And the sultan was so disheartened. We just fought the Christians. Now we have to fight the Mongols. So Izz ibn Abdul Salam, he is the one who came in and he pushed and he preached and he exhorted and he got the king to muster the courage to do this, to fight the Mongols. The king said, we don't have any money, so we're going to tax the people. Okay? And thinking that, um, thinking that Aiz would like this, he said, I'm going to tax the nobles, the rich. He said, no, this is not lawful. It's not lawful. You can't take people's money like this. 
You cannot tax people. Period. Just take their money like this if you're the government. There are very, very strict rules such that you would have to itemize everything you do for them. I'm going to hire the police. All right, itemize it. For every town, we get this much. We're going to collect the garbage and pave the roads. Itemize it. So it's a forced purchase, essentially. All right. So what he did is you have to get loans. So he took loans, right, from the, the rich. And guess who loved him? The rich. Who hated him earlier because he taught, well, he prohibited wine. Now they love him because he protected their money. He says, it's not me that you love or hate. It's the Sharia of Allah. That's the religion of Allah. Right? I think it's my ruling. So they loaned so much money that they were able to raise a mighty force that sent the Mongols back and defeated the Mongols. Okay. Aiz ad-Din ibn Abd salam became such a legend and a mujaddid. His entire life was different forays with the wrong. He literally set the kingdom straight. Any anything? Not yet. Nothing. He literally set them straight. Okay. He issued fatawa. Okay. He issued fatawa against any chiefs, any uh, uh, courts that were not ruling by the Sharia. Okay. And he continued doing his work uh, and his, the kings of Egypt, every time a new king would come, he had gained such momentum. The kings were now afraid of him. Like he had been through the wars. Uh, so for example, when Najm din died, he was succeeded by his son, Al-Malik Al-Mu'azzam Turan Shah, all right? after whom the Turkic chiefs seized the reins of government, all right? and they held Izz din ibn Abdusalam in high esteem. No one would touch him. And who else? The celebrated Turkish sultan, all right? Baybars. Baybars is beloved by the Arabs, by the Egyptians. And he loved Izz din he was more important than he was more influential now than a single king because he went he stood up to these kings and he won every single time and Allah supported him right Sultan Baybars then uh, it was on Izzuddin's advice that after the fall of Baghdad and the end of the Abbasid Khalifa Sultan Baybars invited the uncle of the last Khalifa Al-Mu'tasim and Abu Qasim, all right, to Cairo, and settled them there with all honor and respect. So we point you here now to an extremely, extremely sad and important time. And in Islamic history, this is the end of the classical era. And that is the Mongol sack of Baghdad. And it happens, when does it happen again? 12-something. My mind is saying 1258, but that's not possible. Uh, yes, twelve fifty-eight. Okay, twelve fifty-eight. The Mongols take over Baghdad. That is the end of that Abbasid period. That ushers in something called the post-classical period of Islamic history. The post-classical period is marked by a rise of a Persianate culture over Islam. The Arabs no longer rule anything. They do not rule anything. Every kingdom is Persian or Turkic. 
And the style of everything in Islam at that time becomes Persian and Turkic. And the Arab influence just completely wanes away. And that period lasts from the Mongol takeover of Baghdad all the way until 1798 when Napoleon takes over Egypt. And that takes us to the modern period. And, and then what I consider personally my own is in 1948, that really begins the Akhir zaman period. If we go based upon Surah Al-Isra, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, جِئْنَا بِكُمْ لَفِيفًا فَإِذَا جَاءَ وَعْدُ الْآخِرَةِ جِئْنَا بِكُمْ لَفِيفًا if, we, if the promise of the end times come, we bring you all from all different directions. Where do, who populates Israel today? Jews from all different directions. Allah says, we will bring you from all different directions. Now, the, the classical tafsir of that is actually when the afterlife comes, we resurrect you from everywhere because you're, in, you're, in, you're a diaspora. You're all scattered. Lafifa means from east, north, south, east, and west. But there is a sheikh in Jerusalem he cites this verse as having another meaning. Wa'adul akhirah means wa'ad akhir zaman The promise of the end of times. And that the formation of Israel is the beginning really of akhir zaman And we know this because what is the biggest moment in akhir zaman Is it not Sayyidina Isa and he fights the Yahud? So they have to, obviously they're there. He's fighting them there at Bab Lud, which is the Tel Aviv airport, Right? That's where the last fight happens between the Dajjal and Sayyidina Isa. So, if you want to look at Islamic history, Izz ibn Abdussalam lived in one of the most shocking moments, is that is the end of the Khilafah. Up until that time, the Islamic world was divided into only two Khalifas. Two Khilafahs, I mean. Which was, the 80% of the Islamic world was under the Abbasids, and 20% under the Umayyads in Syria, uh, sorry, in Andalus and Morocco. But the Umayyads lost it after 400 years and it was different monarchies after that. So the Al-Maghrib Al-Arabi, the, the Andalusia and Morocco, was always separate from the East. That's why they grew differently. The culture is so different. They were never connected to the sultans of the East. Okay, so 1258, mark that down, that's the end of the classical period. The classical Islam, period of Islamic history is over. The post-classicals takes over. And now all the rulers, it's different rulers that are Persian or Turkish in nature until, it, this lasts about two, three hundred years, until one of these monarchies rises up to swallow up the rest. And that's the Ottomans. So just like uh, in American history, this happens all the time. When you have absolute, like no man's land, everyone comes, does their own thing, but eventually one efficient, competent, strong takes over all the little guys and makes an empire. And that is the Ottoman Empire, the Safavid Empire, and the Mughal Empire. Three empires rise up to carve out the entire Islamic world, minus the West. All of them, Hanafi Maturidis. Until the Safavid Empire gets taken over, the son of one of them, he turns Shia. And he turns the entire Safavid into Shia. And if we were whiners and complainers like many of these other people, we would say, we would call it the Sunni uh, uh, genocide of Persia. But we don't. 
Because that's the attitude of the whiner and the loser. His eye is on his oppressor all the time, and he wants sympathy. The Armenians want a genocide. Everyone wants to have to be a victim of some sort of the uh, the other, right? And I was my response is to you. Guess what? You lost. No offense to you. Face the reality. You lost. Oh, the what the white people did in India. Hold on a second. Why don't you blame your grandfathers for losing? Like, isn't that part of the equation? Take responsibility and realize that nobody in the world owes you anything. The default of everything is destruction. People destroy each other. Wake up and smell the coffee. That's life. Is it good? Is it right? No. If a prophet doesn't come and civilize people, that's what you're going to get. If he comes around, beats you up, and conquers you, my advice is take karate classes or something, right? Do what Muhammad Ali did. He got beaten up and he went to boxing classes. Is that true? Is that a legend? That is no, true, I, mean, I think. That is true, yeah. He was when, like 11 or 12 years old. Or 11 or 12 years old. younger than that, he got beat up on the street one time and he's like, I'm not going to have this okay. happen again. Okay, he got beaten like, up on the street. Did he go and protest and make a hashtag <laughs> and make himself a victim, right? And then say, oh, I have all these things. And no, he went on and went, took boxing lessons. Islamic world, all of you. Egypt, everyone. I don't want to hear the word post-colonization. What do you think they do? They're supposed to conquer you. Allah tells us in the Quran they want to conquer you, Right? Don't blame them for conquering you. They did their job as bad guys. Blame yourselves and your grandfathers. Why you guys lost. And then go and fix it yourself. Every group, every generation has a thing. When I grew up, I go to North Jersey. May Allah bless those, those Muslims who set up the masjid. Every conversation, every Israel, 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 Israel. Everything is Israel. I'm thinking to myself, hold on a second, you're the one who lost. It takes two people to, to have a situation like this. One strong has to dominate the weak. Don't blame the strong for being strong and evil. Blame the weak for being weak. The weak and good. You're, you're good, but you're weak. First of all, Allah does not give victory to the kafir over the Muslim as a general whole body, okay, unless you're corrupt. And all those people were conquered by Israel, the general armies there, the, the armies in general, were corrupt. I had a, uh, uh, there was a sheikh, his name is Wajdi Hunayn. He said he was in the Egyptian army in the 70s or 60s when they were waging one of these wars against Israel. The night before the war, the guys were passing around American, like, nude magazines, whatever. Hustler or Playboys or something. And, he's, and he is like a religious guy. How are we going to win a fight? We should be praying to Hajjud the night before the army. You guys are looking at these magazines. He said, well, we're going to lose. And they went and they lost, right? Allah doesn't give victory to a, a corrupt Muslim army, and He doesn't give defeat to a pious Muslim army. Individual, yes, but army, no. All right? So, I want you to you know, keep an eye out, because every which way you turn, and there is CRT, and all these other movements, all they do, it's essentially whining in academic. The language is academic, it's just a whine session. Look what they did to us, look what they did to us, look what they did to us. They did this, they did this, they did this. You are, all your attention is on them. None of your attention is on you. What do you offer in the world? Okay, the only reason you exist is you offer people a venting session. And until they get sick of it, you'll continue with your venting sessions. And, and, and we are now venting about you. <laughs> because uh, you can't tolerate these people who've got all their attention always focused on some bad guy never focused on actually just 
face the fact that you lost. That's how simple it is, right? I remember one time my, uh, uh, my friends in school, when we studied colonization and history, like, they knew I was Egyptian, right? And so every time Egyptian history was something to be proud of, because we didn't really know Islam, right, at the time. So we pyramids, like, this stuff is amazing, all that stuff. So Egyptian history had something to be proud of. We have artifacts, right, and stuff like that. So then we move on, and there's, like, no mention of Egypt for, like, ages until <laughs> colonization, right? So it's like it glossed over all of Islamic history. I think there's a, there's a great joke. It's like, like the best thing that Egypt produced after the pyramids was cotton sheets. Cotton sheets, that's it, right? <laughs> Egyptian cotton sheets. That's that, it. Is, and that's all Egyptian. Yeah. Right, yeah. And if you're, if you're an Egyptian from my generation, those undershirts. Those, <laughs> uh, but uh, we finally get to Egypt, and of the French go, Napoleon goes to Egypt, colonized, and they laugh at me, right? Oh, we colonized you. I'm thinking to myself, well, what am I going to say? I was like, actually, you, yeah, my people lost, right? <laughs> my people lost. I don't know why they lost, but they lost, right? That's the most direct, faced, uh, truthful thing to say. They lost. But your victory is not going to last long, right? Nothing lasts forever. Israel, complete domination. I said, okay, yeah, you dominated. Good for you. Am I going to whine about Israel dominating? No. They won. But it's not going to last, Right? Eventually, one day, you're going to be defeated too. So, uh, this is where you just got to look at the reality as it is, and the Abbasids simply got defeated. That's it. Uh, dry up your tears, roll up your sleeves, and you don't like to lose. Uh, you got three days of crying. After three days, halas, it's done with. Pick yourself up and build from scratch. Maybe you'll see victory in your lifetime, maybe not, but at least you die working and building something up that you could pass on to the next generation, like a work ethic to get back into this. A lot of people, by the way, in the course of human history have been smashed and defeated. The Chinese were smashed and defeated by the Japanese. You know, the Japanese, these are like the, they're, they're like the, um, the wasps in that area of the world. They're like the wasps. They tore up the Koreans, tore up the Chinese. They tear up everybody. The Japanese. You think the Japanese today, you see like uh, some nice, uh, calm people. That's after the bombs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they all calmed down after that, right? They got the shock of their life. But before that, the Japanese took over everybody. Okay? You don't see any Chinese, oh, the Chinese genocide. Kore Korean genocide. No. Okay, you guys defeated us. Big whoopty. We'll come back. And they did come back. And China's now in charge over there. And Korea's way better than Japan in terms of its output. South Korea. The, the companies that they churn out are amazing. Every year, they get better. Kia's getting better. Hyundai's getting better. I saw a car that was nice. I was like, what? Is that a Hyundai? Right? <laughs> Hyundai's getting better. Kia's getting better. Samsung is dominant. They're, they're doing, and what is, what is Japan producing? Of course, they got Toyota, Nissan. Anime. Mazda, anime. <laughs> right? Sony's down the drain. Whatever happened to Sony? My day, you had a Sony? That was awesome. Yeah. Everything was black with silver writing. Right? Uh, I love Sony. What happened to them? They just couldn't even compete. Okay. So anyway, we the Mongols came conquered uh, the grandson of Genghis Khan. He comes in and he conquers Baghdad. All right, and he lives through that. And Aziz ibn Abdul Salam says, "Bring this the Abbasid generation. Let them live out their days here." And 
in Egypt and not have to work. One last thing I'm going to say is that Imam al-Nawi, he's always quoting the great scholar Al-Munziri, who has a great book called the Targhib and Targhib, just to show you how important and how respected Aiz was as a scholar. When Aiz ibn Abd Salam arrived in Egypt, Al-Munziri announced, nobody asked me for a fatwa anymore. There's no fatwa to be given when Aiz is in the land. And that is the famous author of a Targhib or Targhib Lil-Munziri. Uh, Aiz ibn Abd Salam is known for initiating the concept of legal maxims. We'll close with this. Al-Qawaid. Okay? And he has a book called Al-Qawaid Al-Kubra. And he's one of the first to really popularize this. And uh, Al-Qawaid is when you look at what are the basic principles of the Sharia. Right? And we know that our Sharia from its Qawaid is the preservation of deen, life, intellect, wealth, and, and lineage. Lineage slash honor because they're connected. Uh, if you notice the Iblisi movement of the world that we're in today, it promotes everything that destroys these things. So, euthanasia, which is now, now being rebranded as voluntary exit, voluntary departure, is now like a big business in Europe. Okay? Uh, and they're trying to make this normalized. Uh, zina and sex, Zina prostitution has been renamed sex work. Okay? Wealth. Usury has been renamed interest. Interest means something you benefit from, right? So they changed that name. Of course, all intoxicants are promoted. And soon, I don't even know why drugs are even illegal, right? Why, why would they, what is the basis of that? Is some remnants of morality that they make drugs illegal. But eventually that'll all be legalized too, probably. And gambling... Every year, residents of New Jersey, where it's been made legal, it's of course, it's been legal in England forever. Uh, we lose like $200 million, $400 million a year. Right? We lose that money. So people, residents of New Jersey who gamble are just losing their money. Right? We, you, gambling cannot exist if the gambler wins more than the house. The house always wins. So... This is actually one of the good things about the, the Tabligh Jama'at. Jama'at al-Tabligh, I don't know if you know this, but Jama'at al-Tabligh, uh, in England, they go on Sundays when all the soccer matches are happening and they preach outside, uh, what's it, Benjamin Hill Gambling House or whatever, at the, the gambling stores. They preach to the Muslims, because they're all Muslims there, right? Gambling. They preach to them. Right? So that's actually a good use of their preaching. It's 2.48. We have only a few minutes today to cover, to take any comments or questions. All right. Let's go to YouTube. Right, Ry, why don't you read us the first question while I get it up here. maximum you could say that some of his teaching matched the teaching of prophethood and I don't even know if that's true but maybe yeah is he okay okay 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, in terms of actual narration, we really have no clue. Like, it's just what people say about Lao Tzu. Trousers for women be part of the correct hijab. Trousers, pants can be if they're loose. How much is it or? They have to be loose. Does it or? Yes. No, it's just it has to be loose and the shirt has to pass the thigh area. The shirt has to go down past the thigh area because otherwise its form is revealed. So that's and it is off. Look at the pious how they dress and, and that's uh, will tell you that pants do have you know, it's possible to have pants, but the shirt has to be uh, down, like lower to, towards the knees, like a tunic, basically. I'm telling you, that's what I see the Muslim women uh, wearing that are considered pious and practicing Muslim women, so that nobody says, oh my gosh, don't tell us what to do with our bodies. I'm very conscious of those, you know, that the woke noise is always in my ear. Always whining about something. Next question. Most Egyptians themselves aren't aware that the founder of modern Egypt was Muhammad Ali Pasha, all right, who is an Albanian, and she's very happy that he's Albanian. Most of us, by the way, most Egyptians of the north, Alexandria, they're half part Albanian. Even I have that. My wife has that. Like in the lineage, yeah, yeah. Tur- tur- they could just call them Turks, but they're Albanians, even though they just call them Turks. So you have relatives in every family that's like, uh, light-skinned with colored eyes, you know that they're from the Albanian um, lineage. Okay. Ismail Khatib, Muhammad Ali, was a story. Uh, the story was his bike was stolen, and he told the police officer that, and he, that he wants to beat up the thief. So the cop told him, you need to learn how to fight first. Good, you see? Ibrahim Khan, there's so much talk like this in the community where people just talk about how such and such took over the colonized places, especially India and Pakistan. First of all, you should be flattered that you found your country is even worth being taken over. That's the second <laughs> thing, right? Because nobody taken over England. What are you gonna What are you gonna get there? Fish and chips. Uh, secondly, the blame goes on the person who lost the war. When I kept looking back, what's the problem? Oh, we lost wars. Why don't we go back to that main issue? We lost wars. Yeah. Everything turned not because of technology, not because of you lost wars. Okay, if you want to regain any supremacy, buy weapons and use them. Don't just buy weapons and sit on them. Use them. Okay. Of course, none of our rulers have any tofiq to have any vision to have anything, uh, 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 any sense of divine tofiq because of this. But if you wanted, all right. To be, a, to be respected in the world, don't be naive. You are respected in the world because of your armies. Because you could punch stronger than the other person. You then, you know what you then get? You get a bunch of lawyers, you get a bunch of, uh, what, they, what, are they, what is it called? Madison Avenue, what is it? Uh, um, you get a bunch of PR people, dress up our country now, dress it up into something nice, Okay. But the truth of the matter is you are respected because you can punch harder than anybody else. Discussion over. A guy who owns a business and he hires the employees. What is the reality of this relationship? I have financial power. You have financial weakness. So we make a deal. Okay? I'm going to help you with your financial weakness. You're going to increase my wealth. Let's then dress it up in a vision. 
right? Dress it up in helping the world. The reality is this relationship is because I'm financially strong, you're financially weak, right? You always got to go down to the bare basics of things to, to understand truly why things happen the way they do. And that's not to say there's never a good intention. We could combine good intention with that, right? It does, still doesn't detract from the financial or the power element of the relationship. And these Marxists are all against any form of hierarchy and structure, right? They think it's by definition bad. So, okay, go and live your life without any structure at all, without any hierarchy at all. Let your kids run the show in your own house. Let's see how that works. Go into your department, your academic department, and rebel against, don't have any structure. Uh, I cannot stand this nonsense. There's some good questions here. Go, Go ahead. My nine-year-old asked, where is the original Qur'an, and why did Allah create the world in six days? That's two questions. In six days instead of creating it in a moment. To, to Allah created the world in the time that He created it. Some people said it's to show the Muslims, uh, to show people that things take time. Things take time in the world of creation, okay? Not because He needed it to take time, but He wants it to take time. That's part of the wisdom of this abode that we're in is sabr, is marination. Sometimes, for example, I want something from Allah and Allah will grant it to me. Why doesn't He grant it right now? This from the sunnah of the life in this world is marination. Things have to marinate. He has created the world in that manner. Right? So that's why it was created in six days. Where is the Quran in Allah al-Mahfud? Allah al-Mahfud is in the Bayt al-Izzah in the, uh, or sorry, the, the first revelation of the Qur'an was to Bayt al-Izzah in the first sky or abode of existence, heavenly existence, uh, above us. And the Qur'an is there. All of it was revealed in there. How was it revealed? On paper, on emeralds, who knows? Allahu Adam. It's not important for us to know. Or significant, really. And what about the original, the preserved tablet? Yes, it is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the preserved tablet. What is that? Is that an emerald? Is that paper? Allah knows best what it is. But his words were dictated to the pen, which then wrote it in a loh al-mahfuz. So good question there from Sophia, the nine-year-old. Any tips for giving khutbah, says Chief Latif? Yeah, listen. Um, listen to good khutbahs. Some people prepare for khutbahs by reading books. Wrong. No. Prepare for khutbahs by listening to other khutbahs because what's happening in a khutbah is very different than what happens in a, um, uh, in a book. Ryan Hiller, Hilliard. Other than Bidayat al-Sul fi Tafdeel al-Rasul, did Imam Izzuddin ibn Abd al-Salam write anything else on Sira or Shama'il? Um... No, not that I know of. Not that I know of. For the uh, stopping the prayers on Nisr Shaban, the issue with that was that it was in Jama'ah? Yeah. Yeah. In Jama'ah. If I understood correctly. All right, folks. We're going to have to stop here, believe it or not. Um, We had a great... MashaAllah, it was great for us to... Uh, study Izz ibn Abdul Salam and see his um, 
his contribution and how a faqih really just, he directed his entire nation. Uh, but I wish I could take more questions, but we have to stop here. Jazakumullah khair. And don't forget to sign up for ArcView. Classes start this Sunday with my tafsir class, actually. Uh, but also there is, uh, in terms for adults, but there's before me, Murad Uthman's class on Aqidah. And then Mu'een and Hala teach the youth. So sign up for arcview.org. Sign up for all the classes and support us at patreon.com backslash Safina Society. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruku na tuwi ilayk. Wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina aminu aminu al-salihat. Wa tawasu bil-haq. Wa tawasu bil-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Oh,